Well, welcome everybody to Encounter Church. And uh, as we get set up here, uh, I want to highlight something coming up in our community that's really, really powerful. Uh, we have on a, a Friday the 13th, perfect date, trunk or treat happening here at Encounter. Uh, maybe you saw the banner out at our Kentwood location, letting the, the community know what's going on. Uh, if, if you haven't been to Encounter before, if you're brand new, this is a huge event that we put on every year. We set up trunks outside and inside with some tables, booths uh, to, to distribute candy to our community and to have a good time. Uh, but listen, uh, I, I want to just, before you hear the messaging, kind of coming out over email and, and, and during this time together, I want to add a little context to that and highlight just why we do the event that we do. Uh, the why behind it is not simply a candy distribution event, right? It's so much more than that. It's got so much more depth behind it. It's that we do the candy in the trunks and we do all the dressing up because, because we love where we live. We care about our community and we love building these important relational connections with businesses around and neighborhood associations where we can all put on an event together. We love our specific neighbors and we love getting to know them. And we love the fact that they not only step foot onto the campus of one of our locations, one of our churches, but also come in through the doors. And they're actually tour through this space, the worship auditorium at our Kentwood location. It's so powerful. Last year we had almost 1,400 unique souls come through our building with like like 40 different trunks. We love that. And so when you think about uh, bringing people far from God to new life in Christ, I hope that you, like me, will get excited about this event coming up again on the perfect date, Friday the 13th. That's what it's about. Um, today we're in a series called Why I'd Walk Away. And, uh, and the series is addressing some really, really difficult questions of what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be religious, particularly in our, uh, in our culture today. Uh, the, the series really grew out of a conversation that I've had with a friend of mine maybe two or three years ago, and I'm going to guess that it's a conversation that might sound a little familiar to some of you as well. Uh, a friend that I've known for a long, long time, he calls me up. Actually, what I mean is he texted me up and said, uh, can we get together for coffee? Not unusual. That's what we do. And we go out, we, we get our coffees, and he's kind of like awkward through the like, hey, you know, how you doing? How, how, are, how are things? You know, and like, fine, fine. And it's just kind of a weird conversation, especially for people who've been friends for a long, long time. And we get our coffees, and we sit down at the table, and he starts this kind of rehearsed speech. Again, very unusual for us. And, uh, and he's kind of describing how he's been on this journey lately, and he's wondered about a few things. He's begun in his faith, allowing his mind to, to wander down some places that he didn't necessarily find himself uh, down. And all of this has kind of come to the conclusion, Dirk, that I'm just not sure what I believe anymore. Right? And this is somebody that, you know, I've been in a discipleship relationship for a long, long time. And obviously it's confusing. And, and I'll be honest, there's a little like hurt behind that is, as well. But as he's having this conversation, he's like, no, 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 but like, you've been a great mentor, you know, and it's not you, it's me. And I'm like, am I getting broken up with over here? Like, what, what's going on? You know, and through it, the two, three years ago, we've maintained a great friendship ever since then. And it hasn't like gotten in the way at all. And obviously, I, I have some convictions that I'd love to, for him to come back to as well. But listen, the way, the reason why I bring it up is the way that he described the journey that he's been on. He's like, I kind of recognize that you and I have, have built this faith of mine, like one piece, one brick at a time. And I've been building my faith called Christianity, my, my walk with Jesus, a brick at a time, a, a concept at a time. And what I've been doing over the last 
several months, is I've been taking the, the bricks out of my faith and kind of examining them one at a time for their structural integrity. What, the, what this means is I've been taking kind of these tenets of what it means to follow Jesus and looking, out, looking at these ideas to see whether or not it's still true for me, whether or not I still believe it. So I kind of take out the virgin birth and I'm like going, really? Did that really happen? It's, it's a hard concept to like wrap my mind around. I pull these, these bricks out. Do I believe that, that scripture uh, Genesis to Revelation is trustworthy and true, in fact. Do I believe that Jesus Christ really, truly rose from the dead 2,000 years ago? And I've been just kind of examining these bricks one at a time, trying to figure out whether or not I still believe it. And I sort of came to the conclusion that I have no conclusion. And why I think this series is so important to us is because I'm not naive enough to think that there isn't a few of us in the room who are going, dude, I'm on that journey right now. I've been asking those questions right now. And I want to help answer them, recognizing it's a three-part series, and I've got like 30 minutes. It's not enough time, but I guess maybe my heart behind it is I also want to help to create a culture and a climate around here where you can turn to the person next to you and say, I'm on that journey. And I have these questions. And the person next to you may not have very good answers, but at least you know that you don't go this journey alone. So we've been on this trip for a little while, and I've been digging into it. And I think it would be helpful to take a step back and take a look a little bit on the historical context that this conversation has taken place in, that your journey, if you're on one, have taken place in. Uh, 20 years ago, September-ish, September 11. 2001, a couple planes flew in the towers in New York City. For those of you who are 35 and under, this is a historical event you read about. For those of you watching online or in the room who are 35 and older, this is a memory. They can tell you where I was when. I can tell you precisely the classroom that I was in when I heard the news that the world just stopped. And some of you who it is a memory for, you will recall, correct me if I'm wrong, you could drive down 28th Street, which is a very popular street here in Grand Rapids, you could drive from one end of 28th Street to the other, and every single marquee along the way, the the signs on the businesses along the way, every single one of them had some variation of United We Stand, uh, Pray for Our Nation, God Bless America, something along that line. And it's a, it's a weird time of oddly being unified. And in those moments afterwards, it was ugly and it was raw and it was, it was beautiful in a way as well. Right around this time, an author tried to get a book published, an author named Sam Harris, and the, the name of his book was called The End of Faith, colon, in a subtitle, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. And in the book, Sam Harris posits that religion, for a long time, was the solution to the problem, solution to the answers that, as a society, we were all asking. And what Harris posited was maybe religion isn't the solution to the questions and the problems that the world is facing today. Maybe religion, Christianity in particular, is actually the cause of the problems that we experience today. And maybe the best thing that we can do is actually throw it out and put religion behind us and talk about the future of reason. Uh, In the wake of 9-11, Harris pitched his book to a publisher who said, 
Absolutely not. America has no appetite for this sort of thing whatsoever. People do not want to flock to atheism because of the national tragedy that we've experienced. So he went to a different publisher who told him the exact same thing. A third one, a fourth one. Uh, 13, no, 12 publishers in a row denied publishing his book. He thought this thing is going to get buried and it's never going to see the light of day. The 13th publisher said, we'll give it a shot. And it stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for 33 weeks. Obviously, America had a voracious appetite. But I don't think that America had a voracious appetite to move towards atheism. I think that America had a voracious appetite to question some of the tenets, to question some of the building blocks, the bricks that faith, Christianity in particular, was made of. And that's going to be real important because a lot of us kind of on this deconstruction journey and, and examining these bricks, it's not like we find atheism all that compelling or all that attractive. It's not like I, I love the idea of just throwing away God and everything he stands for. And I just, I love the idea of there being nothing after I shut my eyes that very last time. It's not like that is so attractive. But listen, if you're anywhere close on this road with Jesus, you have to recognize that what we've made of Christianity and what we've communicated about what it means to follow Jesus is altogether unattractive at times, unappealing or uninspiring, unengaging. And as much as I don't want to like move towards atheism, I don't really have anything that keeps me here either. And that's why we're in this series together called Why I'd Walk Away. Because of what I mentioned last week in the opening, uh, we see this phenomenon called the rise of the nuns. And I realize February, uh, Friday the 13th is coming. It's not N-U-N-S, it's N-O-N-E-S. People who identify as having no religious or spiritual convictions whatsoever. It's not like I'm atheist. I don't even know what box there is. There isn't a box. So I select the box that calls me a nun. Uh, America, last poll that I saw, 23% of Americans responded to no religious or spiritual convictions whatsoever. It's not Buddhist, uh, Christian, Judea, Judaism, none of that. It's none. Among millennials, the number goes from 23% general population. Millennials, I think, is 35%. Gen Z hasn't quite on the, on the tail end aged into adulthood yet, but some researchers are already speculating. It's something like maybe up to 50%. So there's this huge migration. And again, I, I want to suggest maybe not towards atheism, but just like away from Christianity going, I'm, I'm pulling this thing out brick by brick, and I'm just not sure what I believe. And this is one of the most important things I can say this morning. Is the reason why you don't find Christianity all that attractive or appealing, engaging anymore? Isn't the fault of Christianity itself. It's the fault of people who do what we do. It's the, it's the fault of people who do what I do. It's the people with microphones on their face standing up and speaking on behalf of the God who inspired the Bible. I have made this thing less attractive than it is. I understand. Like, like we, we have to like wrap our minds around. And the reason I think why I can say that why I can say, I think it's the messenger, not the message. Because thousands of years ago, when Jesus was doing his ministry in the flesh, 
here on earth, where we got all of this from. He's doing his ministry, and people would show up, and they would hear some really, really hard things, and they would walk away and go, I don't, I don't know quite about that whole thing, but, but honestly, I like him. Thousands of years ago, people who lived nothing like Jesus liked Jesus and liked to be around him. They found him attractive. They found him appealing. They found him engaging. And in turn, he liked and loved them back. And somewhere along the way, we, we've kind of like made this shift and now we, we don't find Jesus, we don't, we don't find Christianity, this faith, all that appealing anymore. And so I just think that maybe it's the messenger and not the message. And if you're on this journey of like pulling out a brick and going, I'm not sure about this one, and if I take this one out, I kind of think that everything else might come a tumbling down afterwards. I have a story for you. Actually, one of Jesus' close friends named John has a story for you. And in this story, I think he's about to ask one of the most important questions that anybody who A, follows Jesus, or B, is doing this kind of work in relation to Jesus, has to ask. In this space, I think this question is everything. And we owe it to ourselves. You owe it to yourselves to try to find an answer. I want to set it up for you. The passage is going to come in just a moment from John chapter 6. As we get into the passage this morning, um, what we're going to see is, uh, is Jesus is at like the peak of his influence. I mean, this guy has a crowd gathered around him. In John chapter 6, we, we find that Jesus had just done his, uh, his famous feeding of the 5,000. You know, he gets a kid's lunchable together and he just like multiplies, multiplies, multiplies until everybody leaves with a full belly. I mean, in a world where the poverty rate is like 90%, this makes him popular, right? He's got this massive crowd. They want to forcibly install him as their king. Like, let's get this thing done. You're in charge right now, right? And he's like, no, 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 no. He retreats away from the crowd by way of a, a, a boat. He goes out onto the lake. He wants to get a little alone time, you know, sends his disciples on ahead of him. And then he, he, he goes ahead and messes everything up by walking on the water out to his disciples. And that just makes him even more popular right? After all these healings, these miracles, these feedings, I mean, his popularity is skyrocketing. And then we see Jesus, and John paints this picture, like there's crowds gathered around, like what's he going to say after all of this? And his friend John records the story in John chapter 6, verse 48. And Jesus turns to the crowd, and he goes, I am the bread of life, and right there, you guys are like, ah. See, we're a bunch of Jewish kids that kind of grew up on the stories. And, uh, and when you start talking about like the, the, the I am statements, in, in Greek it's like ego, amy, I am, the I am. Kind of sounds like you are claiming to be God. And I was cool with the feeding and the walking on water and the healings. But now it's starting to get just a little bit weird. Maybe walk that one back. And Jesus goes, your ancestors, your ancestors, remember back in the Old Testament, Ate the, ate the manna in the wilderness. And he's going, he's not doing the manna thing. Don't do the manna thing. The manna thing is very important to us, Jesus. Remember, the manna is so important that they had a holy box called the Ark of the Covenant. And we found the manna was so important that we saved a little bit of it, the little, little bread, the little scraps that you could eat that sustained our people in the wilderness for all those years. We saved some, we put it in a little jar and it's like special, it's holy to us. And now you're talking about like, you're the bread, you're the manna? In the wilderness? And Jesus goes, yeah, but the problem with that is that manna wasn't very good, was it? 
Like, they all died, didn't they? They did what humans do, and they, and they died. But, but here, and I think he's just gesturing at himself now, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. And you're going, okay, you're the manna, and now we're not going to die. And he goes, I am, there's that statement again, I am the living bread now that came down from, hand, uh, from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And just in case I wasn't clear from this originally, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And everybody's like, I am still with you, but only because I don't have a ride home. <laughs> Like this is, this is, we have to understand how uncomfortable it would have made the listeners of Jesus in that, in that day. And so it's like, okay, maybe Jesus is going to walk this one back here in verse, uh, in verse 40, uh, sorry, verse 52. Uh, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. I got a question. How, how is this man going to give us his flesh to eat? You know, like, uh, just kind of a procedural question, Jesus. Uh, is this like surgery or I just kind of like go up and, uh, and, and take a bite out of this thing? I mean, it's, it's almost at its peak weird. Because just when you're thinking, he's going to back off, right? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and, oh, don't forget the blood, drink that. You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. This is why Christianity might have a marketing problem. Um, and I will raise them up at the last day. Okay, but we know that this is a metaphor. He's not talking like really and literally, right? He's talking figuratively. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. <laughs> And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. And I think everybody's just kind of staring at Jesus like you're staring at me going, where do we go now? In the world was that all about? I just want to point out a couple things. Um, this is going to make it worse, not better, as a heads up. Uh, Jesus said to you, unless you, and he uses the word eat a couple times. Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood, uh, for my flesh is real food, my blood is real, whoever eats my flesh. Every time in this little passage that you see the word eat appear, I want you to remember that Jesus had a myriad of words that he could have chosen. That John could have remembered him saying and wrote those words down instead. Just like we have a whole bunch of different words that we could use. Uh, synonyms for the word eat. You could say eat. You could say consume. You could say uh, ingest. You, you could say partake in. And all of this kind of like lower it a little bit. And the weirdness factor goes way down. Uh, Jesus goes, no, 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 what's, what's the word I'm looking for? And John's like, I can't believe I even have to write it down. The Greek word that he uses is trajan. Trajan, literally translated, especially in other contexts, means to gnaw, to crunch, or to chew raw. If you're going to describe the sound that a wild animal makes when it's chewing up a bone, the word you would use is trajan. Jesus, with the myriad of words to choose from, uses the most graphic word that he possibly could. It's like he's pushing every single one of his followers away. 
And a lot of people don't know this, but we actually have an artistic rendering. Some archaeologists uh, picked some stuff up, a uh, 1,500-year-old uh, artist depiction of the look and the posture that the disciples had as these words were coming out of Jesus' mouth. <laughs> they want nothing to do with it. A couple of you don't get the reference. This is Homer Simpson, and he's fading into the bushes, and he's like, nope, I'm not here. I'm gone. I am it. That's obviously a joke, what the disciples actually said, verse 60. <laughs> on hearing this, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. <laughs> it's a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And what they don't know is that this hard teaching is only the beginning. Because <laughs> some of you read the last half of the book of John. <laughs> And you know that the hard teaching of Jesus and what it means to commune with him and to experience his presence in the Lord's Supper like we did last week is only the beginning of what he is asking you to believe. Uh, This story is going to go on to include a death and a resurrection from the dead. This, Christianity as a whole, in fact is a very hard teaching. So the disciples did what the disciples do. From this time on, not just some, but many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And we kind of get it, don't we? Because if you've pulled out a brick and started examining it for what it is, you probably have come to the same conclusion, like, this is a hard teaching. Like, I'm not sure anymore, Dirk, what I believe. Now, it says that uh, many disciples left because Jesus had not just the 12. He had a lot of followers along. Remember, crowds of followers around. And it's like they did the Homer Simpson into the bushes thing. They, they left. They bolted. They found somebody else to follow and got on with their lives. But there were a few left over. And so Jesus looks at the 12 and he goes, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. And then Simon Peter asked, Peter asked, love, love Peter. Peter asked the question that I think is the most important question for all of us on this deconstruction journey. And he asked them, he asked Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus, I don't get it. I pulled out a brick that honestly you just set right in front of me and it makes no sense to me. Do you want to leave? Kind of. Yeah, I do. I kind of want to leave. I want to be like everybody else and do what they do. I want to bolt. But the problem in Jesus, the thing that's honestly keeping me here, examining a brick that I don't really understand, is I just have one lingering question. Where else am I going to go? And that is such a great question. That's a question that's everything. For Simon Peter, in the context of that day, specifically what he was talking to was probably not like switching major religions or anything like that. What Simon Peter was asking is like, which other rabbi am I going to go to? Because there were rabbinical schools and each person represented a different school of thought. And yes, Jesus was one of those. And he was in the school, he was in the camp of Jesus of Nazareth. And he was following after Jesus' teaching and obeying Jesus' teaching. And then this weirdness happens And he had the choice and he had the option to go after any one of those other rabbis to go and enter their school instead of Jesus. And Simon Peter asked this awesome question that all of us have to ask going, okay, if I disaffiliate from you, Jesus, I do then have to answer the question of where I'm going now. 
And that's the part that we don't always think through when we're thinking through. That's the part we kind of skip over. And to be fair, when we do these baptism stories and, and when we invite you to show the world you've been raised with Christ, by the way, next week we're doing that again. And when people make these declarations, we're going to own the fact that the people who are making these declarations don't even know totally what they're declaring yet. They're just saying yes to God before they even know what the question is. And they're not going to find out for years or even decades specifically what Jesus is going to ask from them. And there's a huge part of any faith that you have at all or no faith at all that's just a simple yes and I don't know what the particulars are. I'm going to jump now, and I'm going to figure out like, what it is later. And so to be fair, every system of belief kind of has this sort of thing. But what we're going to do this morning is to say, okay, you know just what it is that, that's making you like disaffiliate, or making you want to disaffiliate from Jesus. Let's have an honest conversation about where are you going to go? And what that means. Because when I sit down, and my, my friend you know, came up, two, three years ago as well, and it comes up just about every one of these conversations since then. I sit down with somebody and they're like, you know what, the, the, the flesh thing, the weird part of this, the part, the brick that I just can't wrap my mind around is, man, I, Christians and the church, it, just, it doesn't do nearly as much good that I think that it should. And I'm like, I totally get that. 100% get that, right? And, I, and again, like Christians, it's on us to be sort of the one who does the most good. And the Salvation Army kind of took that badge. But, but, but that's sort of on us, right? As the hands and feet of Jesus, we should be doing more. And I'm like, you know, we do this thing coming up in November. Stay tuned. It's called Doing Good Month. And the whole month long, it's just like one big pitch to do something awesome for perhaps the, the most needy people in our communities around West Michigan. And it's like, and it's one month. What about the other 11 months? Yeah, totally. But where are you going to go? Like, is there another group that's, like, doing more? Sometimes I, I, I get the response, like, man, the church is, it's fine, like, as an idea, but then you start to meet the people in the church, right? <laughs> and you start to find out that this, the whole thing is full of hypocrites. We call them sinners in the church. We find out that we're a bunch of hurt people hurting people, <laughs> hurting each other at times. And we bump into each other, and it's, it's kind of ugly at times. And I think I want to leave this whole thing around, uh, behind because the church is like a whole bunch of hypocrites. And it's like, friend, which community are you going to belong? Where you're going to look around the circle and not find a bunch of hypocrites and not find a bunch of hurt people hurting people? Just like ask the question, if you're going to disaffiliate, okay, but ha- be, there's a level of intellectual honesty that requires you to answer the question, but where am I really going to go? That's, that's kind of what I want to do right now. This is, uh, this is arguments not necessarily um, against atheism or for Christianity, but, but this is answering the Peter question that, that he just asked earlier of saying, okay, where, do you want to leave? Yeah, I kind of want to leave. But where am I going to go? Because intellectual honesty also demands that when we leave, a couple of really, really great things leave along with it. When we move away from there being a creator God, and really we're talking about any religion, but I represent Christianity because I know the most about that one. When we move away from the creator God and we move towards no God whatsoever, we lose a lot that we don't often think about in following a different set of beliefs or a different rabbi. A couple of them that I just want to highlight for us. The first thing that we lose, and this could be one of the most important, I'd say second most important, is we lose the concept of your own mind or your own sense of of self. Your mind is a sense, there's a standard of saying, we lose the sense that there is, in fact, a you 
in you. Or there's an I in me. Because when we move away from a creator God to a, to a nothingness kind of reality, and we, and we accept that really everything is the result of, of a set of chemical reactions or biological processes or the laws of physics that are governing everything, and that's really all that we are at the end of the day. And if you're like, that doesn't totally bother me, I kind of get that. After all, physics and biology and chemistry is kind of a, a beautiful thing. Uh, as you start to understand it, as you start to study it. And I just want to encourage you to live that way for a little while, you know? It's, it's like if, if you embrace this idea that really all we are is a set of matter and biology in proximity with one another, I think that that will work right up until the point that your niece or your nephew or your son or daughter runs up to you and gives you the biggest squeeze you've had that week think there's going to be something in the back of your mind that goes, maybe we're not just biology. Maybe we're not just clumps of matter in proximity to one another. Maybe there is something here. I think what's also going to happen is saying, okay, I can intellectually get there. I just don't want to because I don't want to treat other human beings like they're just a clump of matter, like they're biology or they're a chemical process that, that, that's happening. That there's really no you in you or an I in me. I don't want to treat, and I don't want other people to treat me like I'm just matter. I think that there is a me in me. There's something here. And the second part is, is the idea of there being any really concept of, uh, of beauty, of love, of justice, any kind of like objective reality. Because again, it's physics, it's chemistry, it, it, it's the laws of nature. And so you head out to Grand Haven, Holland State Park, and you're on a park bench, and you're watching the sunset, and it is exquisite. It is beautiful. And somebody next to you kind of wrecks the moment and says, no, it's just physics. <laughs> it's light refracting or reflecting. I don't really honestly know how it works. I'm cool with just calling it beautiful, right? I'm that guy. You put on a little, a little music, or you take, in, you take in a show, and it's like objectively, you're like, there's, some, there's part of my soul that, that leaps. It's Vivaldi's Four Seasons. It's Beethoven's Fifth. It's beautiful. It's the original motion picture of Shrek. It's perfect. <laughs> Exquisite. Beauty. In 97 minutes. It's so good. Right, but when we, lose, when we lose out on the creator God and we move towards a nothingness, we lose our objective standards of beauty, of love, of justice. Because we start to find out the problem of evil, that we wanted to move away from a God where there's an evil out there. We, we, we move away from God because suffering and evil exist and we can't believe in a good and just and all-powerful God when there's so much pain and atrocities taking place. And so we move away from that God because of the problem of evil and we choose no God instead. And what you have just done is not get rid of the pain of the problem of evil. It still exists. People are still hurting. What you are moving away from is essentially just the possibility of there being a solution. For those of you on this road of following Jesus, the possibility of Revelation 21 becoming true, that he, in fact, Jesus, will wipe away the tears from your eye Because there's going to be no more death and no more crying and no more mourning because the old order of things is gone, has passed away. We didn't get rid of the problem. We only got rid of the potential solution and the hope that we have of it all. And the last one that I want to highlight for us here is just value. I think this is the most important one. 
I want to believe in inherent value. There's inherent value on each and every person. Not because we as a society have ascribed value, have assigned value collectively, and said this person or this people group has certain value. What I, what I want, honestly, is for there to be a God that says you have value, not because of what you've done or because of a group of people have recognized it, but you have value because I have made you, Psalm 8, a little lower than the heavenly beings. That you are my very image, God says, walking around here on earth. That is your inherent value. And we start to see that value is really just justice. And justice is really just what society assigns. And then you drop in on a couple of societies over history. And you start to see how a value could be stripped of a person or an entire people group quicker than we think. And the devastation that that causes. And I want to look back on that. Not if, but when it happened, it happens, and say it's objectively wrong. Because the standard has never changed of how we treat one another from the time that Jesus said, as one another. And God said, my image walking around in human form, inherent value. I, rec- I recognize, though, we're doing a speed round of some pretty heavy, heady concepts, and we're not doing justice to everything, and I, and I get that. And that's what, that's what the rest of the week is for, <laughs> to unpack some of this stuff. Right? And I get that there's more intelligent people than I who are going to take a look at this sort of thing, and maybe you're going to take the bricks out of, of different kinds of beliefs and start examining them and start to wonder about them. And, and maybe you're going to come to the conclusion, and maybe it is objectively true, that, that there is no inherent value that's just assigned or ascribed value, and that's just fine. Maybe you're going to come to the conclusion that there is no such thing as a, as a purpose or meaning in life. There's just, a, there's just a mashup of chemistry and physics, that there is no beauty, ju- love, and justice. It's just the, the properties coming together. Maybe there isn't a you in you or an I in me. It's just biology walking around in proximity with and around one another. But I hope not. I hope there's more. And I think that you hope there's more as well. And I think if you stick around us long enough, especially throughout this series, one of the things that you're going to find is that you have pulled those bricks out and started moving away from Jesus towards something, towards nothing, in fact, or towards a new kind of atheism. You've moved towards that. Not because you found unbelief so absolutely compelling, but because you haven't found Christianity all that compelling. In part two of this series, next week, we're going to have an honest conversation about maybe the God that you grew up with, maybe the God of your childhood faith was a God you should walk away from because that God doesn't actually exist. And he hasn't ever existed. But if I could land the plane on this one, I want to simply point out that if you are on this journey or if you know somebody who's on this journey and you're pulling out the bricks and going, I don't know if this thing holds water anymore, there's a ton of great philosophical arguments against the faith. 
I don't think that most of us have disaffiliated because you have found an argument all that compelling. I am guessing that if you are honest, what drove you away from the faith isn't an idea. It's a building. Maybe the name of a church. It's a person. It's likely even a pastor who misrepresented the message of Jesus. As a pastor, I get that. Because I mess up all the time. And I hurt people. Because deep down, I'm a hurting person too. So I get that. And please, church, please, don't walk away from Jesus because I hurt you or somebody next to you did. Because Jesus, when he had to put a value on you and decide your worth, he said, you are worth nothing more and nothing less than my entire life. My life for yours. And I'm blessed to be able to do it. That's the God I don't want you to walk away from. If you would stand, all of our locations, and I recognize some of us are on this journey right now, and you don't feel comfortable praying, you don't feel comfortable standing, you don't feel comfortable doing any of this. And we're so honored that you're here. Your presence here is truly a gift. And we don't take that lightly. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you with our questions, not checking them at the door, but bringing them full on. And we invite your response. We invite your truth. We know, Lord, that you are going to have a hard saying for us. And the longer we journey with you, the harder at times it will become. But God, to answer that Peter question, if we disaffiliated because it's hard, where would we go? Where else would we find eternal hope? Jesus, thank you for loving us to death and back again to you.